and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with an absolutely iconic guest, Elena Smith. Elena is the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of the critically acclaimed TV series Dickinson, which ran for three seasons on Apple TV. She also directed the series finale, This Was a Poet. Dickinson won a Peabody Award and was named on over 70 Best of TV lists for 2021, including the New York Times. The show was also twice nominated for a Glad Media Award, and it's been recognized for its groundbreaking queer representation, by which I mean Emily Dickinson and her girlfriend Sue make out to a Mitski song pretty early in the first season, so pathbreaking for sure. Alert. Not just making out yes. when that Mitski song. <laughs> okay, we just, yeah, they are F-U-C-K-I-N-G-ing to that Mitski song. Let's be clear. Yeah. Thank you. Volcanoes in yes. Sioux. Yeah. Volcanoes. <laughs> you get the idea. I see, I yeah. was trying to keep it PG thirteen. I was <laughs> that is not the guy that's not what this episode is gonna be today, and that's fine. <laughs> So a large collection of costumes, set pieces, and props from the show are now on view at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts, which means you can go there and see them. And an archive of scripts and other creative materials can be found at Harvard's Houghton Library, which is actually sort of how we got connected. I'm sure we'll get to that. But if you haven't already seen Dickinson, pause the pod, go and watch it. Three delicious seasons are waiting for you. And if you have seen it, then you'll know why it's so exciting that she's here. I remember it was obvious to me back in 2019 when I saw that first press photo of Haley Steinfeld next to a shirtless John Mulaney as Henry David Thoreau. I was like, Elena is a kindred spirit. (laughs) She gets it. She's on the level. And now that the show has aired all three seasons, I seriously think that Elena and I might share the same brain or we're maybe just passing the same brain cell back and forth. But it's very cool to have you here, Elena. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And it is definitely true that Little Women is inscribed in Dickinson. And oh, yeah, I actually haven't. This podcast appearance was the first occasion for me to look back at Little Women in a long time. Even when I put Louisa May Alcott on the show, I don't think I actually really sat down with the book. I was Mm -hmm. more looking at Alcott's biographical materials. Yeah, yeah. But looking at the book, it's really crazy because I'm like, this was just the air I breathed, I guess, as a child. And so it found its way into the show to such extreme degree. I mean, the relationship Emily and Lavinia is kind of a revisiting of Joe and Amy. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, not not 100%, but it's and there's a lot of Anne of Green Gables in there, too, which is a different podcast. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> but and and it's also funny now. I I have kids. I have five year old twins, one <laughs> boy and one girl. For now, I read. I look at the book and I'm like, it's a little hard for me to imagine my kids absorbing this book in the way that I did. Yeah, and they yeah. are readers. They love books, <laughs> so I hope they will get to it. Yeah, but it is kind of amazing to me that our generation really grew up. <laughs> This very old fashioned, yes, fusty nineteenth century <laughs> novel. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I think what I'm learning as I interview people is that a lot of people grew up with abridged kid versions, where it sounds like some parts were taken out. Maybe sometimes the entire second half yeah. was taken out. 
Some of the language was sort of updated. And now, just in the past few years, we've seen a couple of really great middle grade graphic novel adaptations. There is a My Little Pony adaptation (laughs) on the horizon. (laughs) There's all kinds of ways that people are bringing it out for the new generation. But yeah, I agree. It's always fun to go back to it and see what you've missed. You were saying you... I didn't clarify enough for you. And you thought this was a podcast about Joe's Boys. And you were like, I didn't have time to read Joe's Boys. And <laughs> I was like, I don't have just time to reread Joe's Boys. <laughs> yes, reread. Yes, sorry. But I mean, we could, I definitely, yeah, mm-hmm. There, there's parts from all of the books that are ingrained in my, I know. Yes. With yeah. my, as soon as my kids got old enough to get a play kitchen, I was so excited to get them. <laughs> that's what the twins and little men have. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, deep, deep cuts. But I am glad that, deep we are, cuts, that yeah. we're sticking to the OG little women because that was. We are. I didn't have to reread the whole book. I just reread <laughs> no. the And I'm also just yeah. so excited that this was the chapter because there's just, I have a sure. lot to say about it, but we don't have to get yeah. that way yet. Yes. What I want to get into up top, I mean, we talked about just with everything going on in the world, and I think it's relevant to Alcott because Alcott, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but just she was a very shrewd businesswoman. And you portray this in your show's version of Alcott. She is always out to get a paycheck. She's like, how can I get paid the maximum possible? How can I turn a profit? She's like, (laughs) Emily, you might not want to do poetry. I'm not sure how how much that's going to net you. (laughs) But I think it's relevant to talk about, as we're recording this, in August of 2023, the Writers Guild of America is on strike. And I wanted to invite you to say a few words, Elena, about what striking means to you, why striking is important for writers, maybe which Hollywood executives Lou Alcott would go after today with her strike picket. You just let me know, okay? (laughs) Well, gosh, this is an enormous topic, and I'm going to just only be able to say a fraction of, of what there is to say. But yeah, definitely in... The show, the sort of caricature of Alcott that I present, played so wonderfully by Zasha Mamet, is that she's all about that hustle. And this, to me, was a way of looking at class issues within the show, because Emily is able to write poetry and never publish any of it because she's coming from a privileged position of being taken care of by her wealthy family and given the space and freedom to basically be avant-garde. Whereas Louisa has to think about the market. And in today's world, there's an immediate parallel to be drawn between television series and the kind of serialized narratives that Alcott or Dickens were doing in the 19th century, where people were anxiously waiting for the next chapter to drop or Bleak House, which we have a lot of fun with in the show as well. No spoilers or whatever. (laughs) But I guess the thing is that Television for the last 10 years has been a way for writers of all kinds of backgrounds and sort of positions in society to actually make a living. And that is disappearing now for a really complicated set of reasons that have to do with monopoly and streaming subscription services and on and on and on. So right now we're in the midst of this historic labor action where there's hundreds of thousands of writers and and actors on strike. And it's pretty scary. We don't know, you know, when this is going to get resolved or how. But I know that Louisa would be there on the picket lines because she, more than anything, really was concerned with being able to make art while also making a living. So, yeah. I completely agree. There are some wonderful letters in the archives at Houghton 
where you can see Alcott just fighting with her publisher to get a higher royalty rate and making sure that she's taken care of, that her family is taken care of. So obviously, we here at Joe's Boys Incorporated, we're with you all the way. We're very excited to see what wonderful art you make when the studios decide to give writers and actors a fair deal. So let's just set that down right now. So now let's get into the meat of the episode. <laughs> Elena, we've talked about this a little bit already, but what is your relationship to Little Women? Oh, wow. I mean, so yeah, I mean, I really was such a passionate reader as a kid and Little Women was my sweet spot. I was not really into genre. I was not in my, my obsessions largely were these 19th century children's books. And that I think translates itself completely onto the screen in Dickens. And it's why yes. <laughs> I feel so natural inhabiting an 1850s context is because <laughs> when in, in certain ways, the memories I formed reading those books as a kid, they feel more real than my own memories. And I am looking out my window right now and there's like perfectly <laughs> formed spider web hanging off my wow. <laughs> this is Emily speaking to me right now. But anyway. Yeah. So she's always she's with us. She's always communicating through bugs. But anyway, but we're talking Literally. about Alcott right now, not Emily. So yes. <laughs> although they also lit interestingly, they mm-hmm. lived very close to each other. They they did. You know, they yeah. occupied the same geographical space roughly mm-hmm. and the same temporal space. There's no evidence that they yep. ever actually met, but mm-hmm. they certainly were of the same sidal moment. Yeah. But it's, it's a little sad, kind of as I was commenting earlier, I find it mm-hmm. almost, I can't believe I read these so easily as a kid because mm-hmm. they're almost a bit hard to encounter now and get through the sort of old fashioned vocabulary. And even in a way, like some of the more kind of outmoded values. Yes. Yeah. In the books, but I certainly gobbled them up as a kid and was right there with those Mm -hmm. sisters while they were putting on their plays and eating their pickles and saving sick children or whatever. I also have mashed it up with Anne of Green Gable so much that... Oh, yeah. (laughs) I will say, interestingly, I have not seen the Greta Gerwig Little Women because it was too complicated to watch it while I was making Dickinson because... Oh, yeah. Okay. The same period and many of the same ideas but translated through a different set of aesthetic choices it was, it's yes the i also yeah. didn't, i have not seen any of the emily dickinson movies either i haven't seen the, i haven't seen yeah. the quiet passion i haven't seen them the one with yeah. emily shannon because i couldn't it would get in the way of what i was trying to to sort of paint yeah i completely understand that that's you have to sequester yourself i'm much the same way when i'm drafting something I wrote a novel. It's never going to see the light of day, but I was writing it and I was reading Donna Tartt at the same time. Mm. And my narrator for this book I was writing was a high school football player who wasn't great at English. And then all these, these Donna Tartisms were sneaking in. And I was like, I have to protect my draft. Can so. absolutely happen. I have seen yeah. many times the 90s mm-hmm. women with Winona yeah. Ryder and Claire Danes. And that's yeah. my gen, Little Women. So yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know if I, I can vouch for the Greta Gerwig movie. I <laughs> if and when you want to check that out. One day I'll one day I'll watch it. <laughs> one day I you'll take the plunge. After making three seasons of Dickinson, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to see anything set in the 19th century ever. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but yeah. That's enough. You've had your entire fill of corsets and hoops. And horse-drawn carriages and yeah. horse-drawn carriages. Yeah. yeah. So now 
Which March sister are you? Keep in mind, for the purposes of this podcast, Lori is a March sister. Oh, my gosh. I mean, believe me, this is a question I've sat with a lot yeah. for a long time. And obviously, <laughs> I'm fucking Joe, but I wish I was Amy. And I will say, too, that I was thinking about it now. And as a mom, I finally relate to Meg, who I never yep. related to ever. <laughs> so I guess I'm a Joe's son with an Amy rising and a Meg moon. No, I love that. Beth is nowhere to be found in my chart. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And you're not the first person to be like, this is my horoscope yeah. of my zodiac. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes complete sense. I think I found archival evidence that Lou very much wanted to be a May. She was kind of envious of what her younger sister was able to do and travel the world and make art independently. And I think that strikes a chord. And now with all that in mind, Elena, would you please... Amy is on the brain today. Would you please recap chapter 39, Lazy Lawrence? Yeah. Well, as I was saying, I was so excited that this was the <laughs> chapter I got because it is quite provocative in many ways. And and I, mm-hmm. I, I hope we'll get into, I guess, the analysis of it. But it really, it gets to the heart of, I'm a Joe, but I wish I was an Amy. Mm. The, the sexual rivalry between Joe and Amy and- yeah. The fact that Lori ends up with Amy and not with Joe is, it is so shocking still. And it's also, I think, very queer and very much as a child, my first introduction to the idea that life doesn't map perfectly onto happy endings. I think there's so much to be said about this as a move in literature that I really would think about it a lot. And I, I actually, I love Professor Bear. I, okay. I think it's cool that Joe ends up with Professor Bear and that she gets to have this whole life as this teacher with this older foreign professor who's great. It's just, I mean, I don't want Joe and Lori to end up together. Ultimately, that's okay. not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that the fictional pattern is laid down by Alcott that says Joe is meant for Lori and Lori is meant sure. for Joe. And then for that not to happen is so bold. It's a true nope. stroke of artistic bravery and genius, I think. Because yes. But then I also say that it's queer because it's saying that relationship, this is not Cinderella. The, the, mm-hmm. the point is that it's not heteronormative. Joe and Lori's relationship is basically ultimately considered to be one of like bros who truly love each other. And in a way, Amy's emergence as the one who ends up with Lori is saying like, Amy's such a, she's just so femme. Yeah. And it's by being so femme, she like fulfills the role that Joe could not fulfill. And I find it all just really interesting to think about. Yeah. So in this chapter, Lazy Lawrence, I guess, Lori, you're going to have to tell me a bit about the context of Lori's travels in Europe because I sure. haven't gone back to the book in a long time. But what? Mm-hmm. Find some kind of rumspringer. In- <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> so after Joe rejects his proposal, his grandfather's like, listen, let's just take you out of Concord for a while. Let's go to Europe. Let's hang out. You can mend your heart in Europe by running around and being a, a little rapscallion. So he's kind of on his European Joe heartbreak tour right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> so hot. He's, I'm, it is. Yeah. yeah. 
He's- <laughs> right. So, so Lori is out gallivanting around and getting more and more decadent with every mm-hmm. event, which in this chapter, the word lazy encompasses everything that he's doing, but it includes smoking cigarettes and being a bad boy. And I really think I've, I mean, this chapter hit me. I think, I mean, as a child, I just think it hit me as very erotic and very taboo because basically Mm -hmm. Lori and Amy meet up unexpectedly in this before sunrise European sex. And Amy is off being her very femme, delicate mm-hmm. artist self and practicing her painting, but which she's also acknowledged and accepted that she's not a genius. She's pretty much saying in this chapter, I'm going to be the kind of girl that people just look at rather than the kind of girl that makes things that people will look at. She says, I'll become an ornament to society. She's such a blonde. Anyway... <laughs> So Lori's off on his decadent, lazy trip and runs into Amy and they're both so excited to see each other. And there's such a free song and they're just flirting and hanging out and (laughs) spending all this time together. And Amy is reminding Lori of the good old days when he was in Massachusetts with all these womanly women to take care of him. (laughs) But Amy is seeing how Lori is becoming so dissolute and amoral on his wanderings and she is getting disappointed in him. But so they pretty much take a a sexy day trip together to this place called Val Rosa, which is just covered in roses. And Lori picks a rose that pricks him with its thorn. And Amy says, try lower down where the roses don't have thorns. Literally being like, try a younger sister who's nicer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Amy sketches Lori and they talk a lot. And they're, all of their conversation is romantic because Lori is basically digging in to find out what's the status, what's the relationship status of Amy yes. and Fred. And Amy is sussing out what happened Mm -hmm. with Joe rejecting Lori, even though no one has flat out told her that happened. Okay. Yes. And obviously, I mean, it's really masterful writing by Alcott because we, the audience, feel like we're getting, we get it. We're like, oh, there's tension. I'm clocking it. He's checking her out. She's checking (laughs) him out. But neither of the characters are aware of it. We're aware of it, but yes, yeah, which is super fascinating. So Amy gets to remain perfectly innocent and Puritan the whole time while she's obviously turned on by being alone with Lori and (laughs) and then she kind of loses it at him at a certain point and is like, Mm -hmm. you need to get your act together. You're changing and and you're not the same Mm -hmm. person you used to be. And you should go find your grandfather and remember where you came from and remember who you are. And stop being this loosh gad about lazy Lawrence. And he's a little bit stung, but he gets the message because the next mm-hmm. morning when she wakes up, he she gets a letter, a telegram from him mm-hmm. or whatever that's like, I took your advice. I'm going to see my grandfather. Have a great rest of your vacation. And mm-hmm. it says that Amy is really happy. And she said, Good boy. He's being a good boy. Mm-hmm. But then she gets this pang, like, Oh, but I'm really going to miss it. And this chapter is the schism where the romance between Lori and Amy begins. What's also coming into my mind right now is a a piece of research that I learned while, Mm -hmm. while writing Dickinson is that this actually has a huge echo in the story of Nathaniel Hawthorne and his wife. Oh, yeah. Because Nathaniel Hawthorne 
have, there were these Peabody sisters in they all, these all the same New England folk at the same time. And Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Peabody was the Joe. She was the intellectual Mm -hmm. force feminist. And they were very, Nathaniel Hawthorne also was famously hot. He's what we call (laughs) a historical hottie. Yeah, um, I love it in pictures of him. It's like, whoa. But so Nathaniel and Elizabeth had a very intense relationship, but I think it was just basically in the end, she was too strong for him. And mm-hmm. he ended up marrying her young, quiet, delicate, invalid sister, Sophia P. And they also had a very legendary romance. Mm-hmm. And I think also raised their children in this kind of hippie way, which is interesting, but... <laughs> Whatever. But the point is that this idea of there being two sisters who present different types of romance to a man, (laughs) that in itself is queer because it is in an odd way. It's not at all about the man. It's about there being these two women (laughs) side by side having sexualities that are not identical to each other and that in some ways are sort of yeah yeah in some ways are sort of complementary to each other and i guess it's just also it's like a triangle and it's very dramatically fascinating to me and i actually will say i have had this idea i'm not really doing anything with this right now but i did have this idea yeah making a show that would just be called amy that would see joe through amy's eyes but this chapter this chapter would be the pilot of that show because this is really... Yeah, completely. This is where you meet Amy. Yes. First of all, obviously, I would watch that show in a heartbeat. I <laughs> I love that five minutes ago, you were like, I never want to do anything in the 19th century again. You're like, anyway, now. I think it would be contemporary. I think it would be like okay. contemporary New York. Okay. Contemporary New York. <laughs> all about Amy. I will say also, if you want to just get a taste of what it's like to be Amy, her journals are at the Houghton Library. I don't know. <laughs> I think just jet over there. But she has... They are... Her journals are so much fun. She is going on vacation. She is flirting with every boy. <laughs> Very- highly, highly endorsed. Checking that out. We are going to do a special episode at some point, which is probably just me reading May's journals from the summer that she went to a beach resort and had just a full hot girl summer and made and flirted with three different boys. And they were all competing for her affections. <laughs> it's just that's the thing. This is yeah. her. This is hot girl vacation to France. It, it is. I just, it is. I thought of a, another thing to say though about sort of <laughs> what I'm tr- this point I'm trying to make about this radical queerness of the yeah. narrative. Sorry, yeah, you brought so many it, points. Yeah, go ahead. It's also that for Alcott to. Ma- I mean, look, I don't think there's any character in English literature that we <laughs> identify with as readers more than Joe. So you are completely. Yeah, and you're like I'm Joe. And then all of a sudden, for Joe to be totally displaced, and for you mm-hmm. to be with Amy, who, frankly, Joe has hated for half of this book. Yep. Yep. And for you to suddenly be aligned with Amy, having this private, secret experience with Lori in, yes. in Nice, that's a very powerful move for a writer to make. <laughs> and I think that it's what adds to this incredibly voyeuristic yeah. feeling of this. <laughs> chapter but also this kind of maybe this queering of identity because it's possible to identify so much with joe and then to find yourself identifying so much with amy it's kind of like wow there aren't the same kinds of boundaries around 
identity that I thought or something. Yeah, exactly. Because especially when we know that Joe was such a self-insert for Alcott to such a degree Mm -hmm. that she's also able to just completely naturalistically slip into Amy's voice and be Amy and imagine being Amy. It's really exciting. This whole chapter gives the feeling of looking through a hole in the hedge at these two people talking in the garden, right? Yes. And Amy's world is made of flowers and watercolors and white gloves. And it's, it's, it's not what Joe's world is made of. No. But interestingly, I think we're finding is... Amy's world is what Lori's world is made of. And a lot of this chapter is her taking him to task for being feminine or womanly. Hmm. And that's very interesting to me. That is very interesting. Because even though without question, Amy is the most high femme character in this book, she is taking on this dom top role here. Yes. (laughs) And being like, I'm going to tell you how to get your life together, Lori, right? There's a number of things that she says about him that are almost queer coded or specifically saying you have a soft hand like a woman we can we can get into it we can go play by play but Mm. that's fascinating to me that a lot of this she's telling him to grow up but she's also telling him to be a man Mm -hmm. in a very (laughs) literal sense and in the way that he's handling the rejection Mm -hmm. she's she tells him he's not being a man she tells him yeah a man would basically get over it and still respect the woman Instead yeah. of just being so emo. Yeah. And I, I think one of the really special things about Little Women is that the character of Lori, it opens up for young boy readers. It's like, hey, being a man might not look the way you've always thought it might look. Mm-hmm. There might be opportunities for something else. As much as <laughs> Amy is going pretty hard on stand up, grow a beard. She, she says, I'm just, I made all these notes here. One of the first things she says to him is, you'll have nothing to do but hold your umbrella and keep your gloves nice, which is, that feels like she's calling him a slur. <laughs> she's really, Lori's masculinity is not normative by any means. Not in the way he dresses himself, presents himself, moves to the world, feels about Joe, which is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I also read a lot of class stuff in that. Yeah. He's, Lori's rich and he's taken mm-hmm. on the debauched life of a European aristocrat. And Amy, for all her frills and Mm -hmm. femininity, is fundamentally this New England working class girl. That's why the word lazy is so interesting, because this obsession with working. Basically, Laurie becomes... Laurie's masculinity diminishes as he is not working. Mm. He's becoming a woman because he's not applying himself to some trade. And that's very America 19th century. That's very Lincoln building his cabin (laughs) kind of saying rags to riches, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Rich boys like Lori don't really have the opportunity to do that because they were already born down top. Yeah. Born with a silver spoon. He's never had to, he's never had to really work. And I think in this book, we see gender and class are just so married to one another. Mm-hmm. Like you said, hard work always masculinizes a person or makes a person better. <laughs> it's all very linked. I want to tell you something delightful about this chapter title, though, Lazy Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Do you know where Alcott got that from? Where? There is, in New England folklore, a pixie and nature spirit called Lazy Lawrence, and he is said to live in the orchards and send people to sleep beneath fruit trees and make them lazy and make them dither and give them stomach cramps. So okay. going back to the 1700s. Peyton, let me tell you another show I want to make is a show about fairies. 
Yes. If you want to start sending me that kind of research, I would really appreciate yeah. it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll put that in the chat for you. That's just John Madison You're has a cool. great annotated little women where he he drops these little trinkets, pop culture references from the 19th century, which are just completely lost oh, on us. So fun. But yeah, so it's it's literally immediately a reference to Lori being a fairy. Yes. <laughs> or someone who whose laziness is infectious and and that's pretty fun. Well, that's very so, interesting. And actually, it yeah. kind of raises another aspect of this triangle, which is mm-hmm. this chapter is also meant to be allowing the readers who have identified mm-hmm. with so much to start to feel okay about the fact that Lori isn't the one. Yeah. Because yeah. If, if Lori and Amy are meant for each other, then Lori <laughs> wasn't really ever meant for Joe. Because I thought when you were saying the world of roses and white gloves is also mm-hmm. Lori's world, they are a bit shallow, both of them, in, yeah. in a way. Like, or as- aesthetically inclined. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, compared to Joe and Professor Bear, <laughs> I think yeah. it's, it's interesting to start to see her organizing the archetypes of these characters into different pairs than we would have expected. Yeah. And it, so it's interesting that although... Lori and Amy both share these aesthetic interests and this kind of innate femininity. It's something that Amy is really taking Lori to task for in this chapter. We also get some 19th century ethnic stuff. We hear a lot about how part of why Lori is lazy is he's part Italian. <laughs> it's just that sneaking in there. <laughs> oh my God. It's I his mean, Italian nature. It you is can't also it. interesting though, too, because Amy basically says in this chapter <laughs> to Lori, she's like, I need to become a rich man's wife. Yes. And, and Lori is actually shocked that any daughter of Marmy would ever say that out loud. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, yeah. Being, she's being practical and she's being real. <laughs> and she's like, no, I need a rich guy to support <laughs> me. And, and it's interesting because Lori is that rich guy ultimately. Yeah. But in order for it to still be a moral coupling, mm-hmm. he needs to reform his character. Yes. In order to then just be his trophy wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which involves, so the gender stuff, it's like a Mobius strip, right? Because mm-hmm. she's like, be a man. While she is taking on this masculine role saying, I would take a rejection manfully. And there's, we'll get into it. I want to kind of walk us through each of these instances but it really is, in so many ways, kind of Amy stepping into this masculine role for really the only point in the book. And it's to tell Lori to sort of man up, literally. So I want to kind of go one by one of these things that I've noted. We've talked already about how Amy said, you'll have nothing to do but hold your umbrella and keep your gloves nice. She's taking pot shots that he's not working because of his class. She's taking, that's holding the umbrella seems very femme to me especially in this context. There's a part where they're getting up and Amy is kind of gathering up her sketchbook. This must be a giant bundle thing that she's, it's very sturdy. And he offers to carry it for her. And she says, it's no exertion to me, but you don't look equal to it. So (laughs) immediately calling him weak, saying, I'm stronger than you. I'm physically stronger than you. And where's the part where she touches his hand and is like, look at your white, lazy hand. Yeah. That's not too far after this. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Let me. Aren't you ashamed of a hand like that? Mm-hmm. It's as soft and white as a woman's mm-hmm. <laughs> and looks as if it never did anything but wear Jouvan's best gloves and pick flowers for ladies. So that's interesting. It's as soft as a woman's and it looks like it picks flowers for ladies. 
Right. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, one thing is to live a life dedicated to pleasure. Yes. It's yeah. female. Mm-hmm. Or it's like a female, it's a feminine ideal. Yeah. And that is the life that Lori is living. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. And when you say yeah. Amy is kind of be Amy takes on a masculine persona only yeah. for the only time. I would also mm-hmm. say she that is equivalent to saying she takes on a Joe persona. I think so a little bit. She steps into but, being Joe because Joe's mm-hmm. not there to do it. But clearly Joe couldn't get this message across to Lori either. So it has to mean something specifically coming from Amy. That's Maybe true. Amy is probably the number one source on how to keep your gloves clean and carry your umbrella. That's and true. she's saying, <laughs> but I, I think the thing I'm stuck on is your hand is as soft and white as a woman's and it looks like all it does is pick flowers for ladies. So where are these soft-handed women who are picking flowers? For <laughs> it comes back around on itself and it's lesbian imagery almost. <laughs> Well, What's happening there? And then we yeah. must always remind ourselves that this character's name is Lori, which is a woman. Yes. So, <laughs> which is a woman's name. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also this thing of, along with just saying that she's, she calls him depraved and weak and feminine. And at one point, so Amy says, what would Joe say if she saw you now? And mm-hmm. he says, as usual, he tries to laugh it off. He says, as usual, go away, Teddy. I'm busy. He laughed as he spoke, but the laugh was not natural, and a shade passed over his face, for the utterance of the familiar name touched the wound that was not healed yet. So there's this open wound imagery Mm -hmm. that also feels very feminized to me. (laughs) And this unfulfilled sexual thing. Yeah. Which, in my notes on the side, I was like, since I'm just fully on crack now, open wound vaginal imagery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, vulnerability. Vulnerability. He's got this yeah. unhealed vulnerability that is apparently repulsing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's something that she has to take him to task for. But while doing that, sort of be like, why are you like me? This is my job. <laughs> you are taking my job from me. <laughs> I'm the one who wears the gloves, carries the umbrella. But then also she delights in these opportunities to even take the manly duties away from me and be uh, from him and be like, no, I'm going to carry the sketchbook. And if I were rejected, I would be a man about it. So she's saying, look how feminine I am. And I'm more of a man than you. It's very, <laughs> it's very weird. The stuff that's happening here. It's yes, a lot. It is. It's and, all and, happening. and it is also happening in yeah. this location, which mm-hmm. is basically a garden of Eden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, time, she says, big time. Geez, isn't this a honeymoon mm-hmm. paradise? I mean, it's basically The Bachelor or something. They're in the honeymoon yes. suite. There's roses everywhere and they're, and it's private and it seems to be yeah. like, untouched in some way. It is actually kind of amazing that they are just alone, the two of them. See, this is where we also get into a whole aspect of 19th century life that I had a lot of fun with Dickinson, which is the yeah. idea that I think you could make the case that people mm-hmm. had more sex in the 19th century. They it's just, very possible. They just didn't talk yeah. about it in the same <laughs> way or something like this. Yeah. How do we know, basically, because there's such a taboo against talking mm-hmm. about it, how do we know that Alcott isn't basically intending for us to assume that Amy and Lori hooked up in this grove? Well, that may very well be the case. There is a later, I think, full-on fade-to-black sex scene with Lori and Amy, when he proposes to her on the boat, she sort of zooms out and is like, we'll give them their privacy while they're in the boat. Wow. 
I say that only because obviously they can be, I don't know what went down in the boat, but there is another Alcott sensation story where the, <laughs> the premise of the book is that a bunch of young people take hashish, <laughs> spelled with two E's because it's the 19th century, <laughs> and a young woman and a young man go out rowing together. And the young man is overcome with passion because of the hashish and, and jumps at the girl in the boat. So we know that she knows right. that sex right. in a boat was something that could happen. <laughs> and it seems right. that... Lori and Amy get up to that later. Here, though, it seems this is, we have to read, I think there's an erotic undertone to all of this. And something that gets very strange here is he says, when she's asking, sorry, I'm just looking, I'm looking at the chapter. She's saying, I could just lay into you right now. And he says, I'm never angry with you. You couldn't possibly make me angry. He says, you are as cool and soft as snow. And she says, you don't know what I can do. Snow produces a glow and a tingle if applied rightly, which is very, that's, that seems. Yeah. That's, I also like the, the thing. They, they also say the two of them, they spend so much time together in this chapter. They're always by each other's sides. Yeah. Not, and, the, and it says that they never quarrel. They never fought. No, no. It's, he's accepting the criticism mm. really is what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. And I, I guess. I think different people have different feelings about whether they want to be in a relationship that has <laughs> conflict or not. But it's definitely, pres- yeah. we do start, as much as we love Lori and Joe, we do start yeah. to feel this little bit of, oh, Lori and Amy, that's a ni- that's a good relationship. They'd be good for each other. And so I think all this stuff about going to play what role. Yes. It's really about them sorting out how they're going to be able to achieve this promise of this yeah. Totally harmonious relationship. And I think what this chapter is getting at is in order for this to work, Lori is going to need to submit to Amy. Mm. And I mean that in so many ways, but immediately following that thing where she's like, snow produces the tingle if applied rightly. She says, a good stir, I could stir you up. And he says, stir away, it won't hurt me, and it may amuse you, as the big man said when his little wife beat him. Regard me in the light of a husband. This is Lori talking. Regard me in the light of a husband or a carpet, and beat till you are tired, if that sort of exercise agrees with you. So that's very (laughs) phantom thread. Well, this is also really interesting, because Amy is pissed off that Lori is not getting rejection from Joe as a man. But yeah, the other yeah. kind of context of that is, could you please get over my sister so that we could be together? That's true. She yeah. Marry Lori if, yeah. if he's in mourning for Joe. That's not going to work. So basically, it's interesting. There's all these coded messages <laughs> that they're giving each other. Yeah. If both of them can sort of align themselves properly, mm-hmm. then Lori can get what he wants, which was a marriage to a dominant March sister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Amy can get what she wants, which is a tranquil (laughs) marriage to a rich guy. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. So this is them figuring out how they're going to make that happen. And it kind of, it's Lori saying, much earlier in the book, Joe flies at Lori. And when she apologizes, she he goes, no, fly at me again. I rather enjoy it. And here he's saying, treat me like a carpet and just beat me up. He's saying, I want to be dominated by you. I want, yes. and he, in both a sexual way and just in a relational way. We like he know, doesn't want to be, yeah. We do know that, I mean, of all four March sisters, Amy is this, like Joe. Yes. Amy is really kind of like a mini Joe. Yeah. They have a lot in common. They're aligned in that they're the most ambitious ones. Yeah. The most artistic. They, well, I guess Meg is for acting. So, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, yeah, they all have different artistic pursuits, yeah. but Meg decides not to make a career out of acting. We know that acting was, <laughs> Beth dies, right? But even then, she only wants to practice music for the family, yeah. right? She's even nervous to go over and play the piano at the next door neighbors, right? She's shy. She's shy. In the 1930s, Little Women, Amy takes Grandpa Lawrence aside and says, Beth is next to her. She's like, she has an infirmity. She's shy. Oh, <laughs> you yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, right. I think <laughs> that Amy and Amy and Joe are—they're both provocateurs. They go out, yeah. They they stir shit up and kick ass in their <laughs> own ways. In yeah, and they're competitive with each other. They are. They're very competitive. I think, and some of that comes. A lot of that comes actually from just Amy's social ease, which allows her to get things that Joe can't get. Right. Like this entire trip to Europe came about because Joe screwed up a visit to their aunt's house, right. right? And was rude and said, I don't speak French. I don't care. Whereas Amy's like, yes, I'm trying my best. <laughs> so I think what we're getting here is Joe didn't, wasn't a natural fit with Lori. And part of that might just be they didn't have the same shared interests. But we're seeing that Amy and Lori really do. And we're seeing that Lori can't ride roughshod over Amy. Right. 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 He has the power to hurt Meg's feelings. We see him do that earlier in the book. And Meg isn't really able to stand up to him. Amy is more than able to stand up to Lori and tell him how to get his act together and tell him what she wants and needs from him. And I think that really makes Lori really enjoys that kind of treatment. Right. Which is why we've tossed around kind of a founding principle in this show is it's valid to read Joe as a transmasculine character. And I think along with that, there's a lot in the book that suggests reading Laurie as transfeminine. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the best way that I can kind of get on board with Amy and Laurie is they're this femme for femme couple. <laughs> I think that, that yeah. right. And, and in, the, in mm -hmm. that sense too, if Laurie and Amy are so similar, and if Joe and Amy had a fire between them as well, in terms of their yeah. competitiveness and their rivalry. <laughs> and Joe and Lori had a similar type of antagonism that was also a passion, that was also a friendship, that was also... Yeah. yeah. It starts to blur the distinctions between... And this is very Dickinson, my show, so I'm going to bring it... Yeah. Up. Oh, completely. <laughs> it blurs the distinctions between the roles of sister, friend, and lover. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that... When a woman is in an intense, intimate, passionate relationship with another woman, mm -hmm. those roles are very blurred and very complicated. Yeah. And so that ultimately, yeah, I buy what you're saying about Lori, because in the end, <laughs> Joe's relationship with Lori and Joe's relationship with Amy, they end up being kind of the same. Yeah. Except one has sex in it and the other doesn't. <laughs> Pretty much. As you know, because you didn't recently read Joe's Boys, but they all kind of wind up living in this big commune on a campus together. Oh, right. Raising all their kids together. And Joe and Lori... What a dream, by the way. I know. Please, anyone I, reach out <laughs> if they feel like doing that. Yes. Fruitlands 2.0. Yes. Let's get into it. <laughs> Maybe plan ahead a bit more this time. Yeah. <laughs> I think... But you drop into any chapter of Joe's Boys, and it's like picking up exactly where you left off. Joe and Lori are putting on a play. They're calling each other weird little nicknames. It's just they're married to other people, and they have kids with other people. And these family 
the family and romantic lines are blurred. Even here, there's a lot of mention of brother and sisterly adoration. He says nothing is so pleasant as the sisterly adoration of the girls at home. And he's talking for about the marches. Maybe he's not in the market for a romantic partner as much as a sister. Maybe he's seeking for some like hybrid of those roles. Yes. Which is very interesting. Yes. And one of the things about marriage is that when you are married, you become family members. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is part of the deal. It's very interesting and strange to think about. But I do think, look, I do think though that these relationships in little women are truly laying down some pretty good paradigms for how to build lasting relationships. Completely. Yeah. A lot of the Family Meg chapters. Is the core of everything. Family is religion in this book. More than, more than even religion itself, yeah. I think. And what's also fascinating is that the dad is off screen for most of this book, yeah. which means that especially for the first half, the marches are effectively a two mom household. Totally. Marmy and Hannah are close and sharing chores. Obviously, Hannah doesn't have equal status to Marmy in the family, but they're very much making these household decisions well, I together. Thought you, when you said two mom household, I thought you were met, met Marmia Meg. <laughs> That's very possible as well. It's an all female household. It's an right? all female household. It's an all female household. Yeah, and they're learning yeah. more than anything from Marmy. They're learning what it is to be a mom. Yes. They're learning yeah. what it is to be maternal. They have mm-hmm. no yeah. interest in what it is to be a dad. Well, except Joe. Joe gets to be the man of the house. <laughs> Chapter one, she's like, I'm the man of the house now. Yeah. And I think a chapter, a few before this, when Joe comes home from the seaside with Beth, as soon as Marmy and father see Beth, they know that she's dying. And the father turns away and just looks at the mantle. And Joe has to be the one to go to Marmy and comfort her and kind of take on the role that the husband might. Mm. It reminds me of things that Alcott said in journals when her older sister Anna's husband passed away. She wrote, I must be a father to Anna's children now. It reminds me of what in Dickinson, when Emily just calls herself Uncle Emily. Yeah. Right. Which was, which was true. Yeah. She, which was true. She really did call herself Uncle Emily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, she also all often referred to mm-hmm. herself in her poems as a boy, a man, yeah. using masculine pronouns. Yeah. The authorial yeah. voice in her work was often masculine. And yeah. To pull a lot of this together, it makes complete sense to me. Look, I am a working writer and the breadwinner yeah. of my family and a mom. <laughs> and yeah. to be a working writer as Alcott was, when you really do have the burden of financial security on your shoulder, <laughs> in American society since the time of the 19th century, that has been <laughs> a masculinized role. Yeah. That's what Amy's yeah. saying to Lori. She's like, you're lazy. You're a woman. You're not working. Yeah. But that would mean, by contrast, one who works, one who earns money through their labor is a man. Yeah. And so as a woman who identifies as female, it's very complex to also be a writer. And that's something in in the show Dickinson, that's mm-hmm. my, I mean, because I'm talking about my character, Emily, not the real Emily. Yeah. But there's a lot of, there's just a lot of meditation on that because it's almost like in the act of picking up a pen, you sacrifice your identity as a woman. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Little Women 
is about more than anything for me. Yeah. It's both providing a role model that is a female writer, but it's also basically saying that is not really a woman. I mean, her struggle is to be a woman. Yes. (laughs) It's a role that someone asked her to play without ever asking her if she wanted to play it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that stays with us today. There's an episode where you're Emily and Lavinia travel into the future to 1955 and they meet Sylvia Plath and Sylvia's wearing these cute pedal pushers and she's saying, yeah, I go to college. This is a women's college. And Emily and Lavinia are like, holy fuck, women can wear pants and go to college. Things must be great. And Sylvia's like, (laughs) she's like, no, they're pretty terrible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To even the point we're getting into Sylvia Plath, because we've gone all over the place. That was, it was a source of tension in her marriage to Ted that she came into it and she'd been publishing since she was a teenager. And she was like, Ted, I'm going to help you. I'm going to manage your career. This is how you send a query letter. This is how you talk to the right people. She, in so many ways, was taking on the male role in that relationship. And this does tie into a question I had for you, which is, why did you not portray Emily Dickinson stabbing Ted? Was that <laughs> off the table? Yeah, when Sylvia was at Smith. I mean, I don't He went to, We got to be historically accurate. We do, Any yeah. time travel to the 50s. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I think also it's really... The weight of how hard it is to be a woman writer mm-hmm. and the fact that, as Sylvia says in my show, she says, mm-hmm. Emily's the future isn't quite what I expected. And she's like, don't you know, for women, the, the future never comes. The future never comes for women. Yeah. Yeah. I unfortunately do believe that. I believe that we don't get to escape from these things ever. And it's never going to be fair. And the historical yeah. debt is never going to be repaid. But I also have found in my own journey as a writer, and I just share this with anyone who's listening to this podcast that could benefit from it. The healing route is to form alliances (laughs) with other women and non-binary people. Yeah. Yeah. And it took me a really long time to get there. I, I really was fixated on male approval in a lot of ways. And it makes sense because they do have a lot of power. So it's, Yeah. yeah, it's, pretty practical to think, let me get their approval and then I'll be able to do what I need to do. But in the end, it's not worth the amount that the alliances with other women are worth. And I haven't, I just think that, okay, we might never get to live in a man's world, but so, but let's commit to being in the non-man's world that we can be in something like that. Yeah. I completely agree. I think so much of I I think Alcott was enabled to be a writer by the women in her life, right? I think often dad was not the one running the show around the Alcott home, right? In fact, she wrote Little Women, we know from the archive, in part as a negotiating tactic to help her dad get a book deal. She was the one who kind of had that negotiating power. She was writing things, putting on productions with her sisters, her mother was the one who kind of gave her the example of what it means to work outside the home. So, and obviously we know that so much of Emily Dickinson's poetry was inspired by women in her life, women she loved, women she was romantically involved with. So, Well, and women were directly and exclusively responsible for the preservation of Emily's work. Yeah. And so there's this, I'm very into this idea of the work that women do. Yeah. Often behind the scenes, often without credit, 
to really preserve our history. Yep. And I think Dickinson is such a credit to that. Obviously, Dickinson is not his historical fic. Well, it's historical fiction where like Wiz Khalifa plays death and we get all these. That was. It was. Yes, he was there again. But I think you all, you make a really explicit place in your narrative for queer people and queer futures. There's a, a, we have a trans soldier who's in the, the asylum in that one episode, right? What I want to say also is when we think about how, I, I think especially for baby trans men, there's a difficult moment when you're sort of affirmatively transitioning to become a man. I know that it's easy to feel like a traitor or that you're selling women out or that you owe it to women and to feminism, <laughs> right? To keep being a woman. But I think if we want to understand Alcott as a trans man or even Joe March as a transmasculine character, I think a lot of what we see in Little Women is Alcott being someone who didn't fit into this rigid sex gender binary and saying, what would it look like if men were this and women were this and the rules weren't so rigid? And if I could make my own rules. And I think the beauty of transition is being able to define what being a man means for you. And a key point in my own transition was understanding that wanting to be a man did not mean wanting to be a cis straight man. Mm. (laughs) And there are so many different ways to be a man. There are so many different ways to be a woman. And I think one of the beautiful things about this book and even this chapter is that it really, it mocks the gender binary. Yes. It's saying, Lori is a woman and Amy gets to be a man for a moment and she would bear it manfully. And we know that Joe wants to be a boy, but Lori loves her anyway. And everyone is just constantly crossing these borders all the time. And it's really thrilling. So Hmm. I feel like we both just said a lot about how to live in the world and make in the world. And it was, it always (laughs) is. I want to ask you just one last question, Alina. I don't want to keep you here too long. Elaine, I'm sorry. I know it's Champagna, but my best friend's name is Lena. I apologize. We <laughs> cut all that. But I asked our readers, our our followers for questions and some true Dickinson heads got in the comments and were like, give me season four, which is just Emmy Sue. Yeah. <laughs> so one person just asked, how are you such a genius? And I, so I would like to ask, Dickinson is really, there is nothing fucking like it. <laughs> how are you such a genius? How did you get that thing made? Did you ever doubt yourself? Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? For anyone else who wants to make weird art. Oh boy. We might need to do just a bonus episode because there's really too much <laughs> to say. It was, sure. it was a years long process. And in many ways, yeah, yeah. it was a, I mean, it was an act of will, but also mm-hmm. a fortuitous moment in the streaming boom. Yeah. And so I, I think there's always, look, art lives in tension with commerce. And mm-hmm. markets shape what we get to make. Yeah. But I would say just personally, I got to put almost everything I love into that show. And I was carrying it. I was carrying that collection of, of beloved scraps with me, I guess, my whole life. So yeah. part of being, I guess, part of being an artist is being prepared. So I, <laughs> I was prepared for fortune to make it possible for me to make yeah. that show, both in terms of how hard I was willing to work to do it, but also the community that I was able to sort of bring on board to do it. Yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. It's a lot of people I used to do theater with and mm-hmm. just sort of other like-minded artists functioning mm-hmm. 
the TV and film space. And it was all done with an incredibly independent spirit. Yeah. And, but no, I mean, it doesn't behind the scenes, the, the process of making a TV show, it didn't look anything like what I would have expected it to look like. It was a battle. It was a battle the whole time, but we did it. And I also finally secured my Blu-ray copies. So I'm very, (laughs) yeah. And I don't know. I, I think I always feel about Dickinson that. The, the story of Dickinson, the, the person, and then also the show, it's not finished yet. Apple TV, when, when Dickinson started was a brand new platform. And so by option yeah. had zero subscribers. And so the platform has grown, the, but, but also the audience, the potential audience for Dickinson is so much bigger than has been able to watch it so far. Yeah. And I just look, I really hope that I've made something that's going to mean as much to people who, are coming of age, who are in, yeah. in Emily Dickinson, who are just want to watch a good period show, who want, I, I, I think that there's both 19th century period, but also where someone gets their period, both, both senses of, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I hope that anyone who loves the show, I hope you will continue to be a sort of messenger for it because there's still mm-hmm. lots and lots of potential Dickinson fans who haven't actually gone to see it. So yeah. So thank you for saying that. And again, everyone listening at home, Joe's Boys listeners, trust me when I say Dickinson is our shit. It is for us. It is your pristine, sumptuous Thanksgiving dinner. I don't sit here and know how to say it. It's just, it was very much made with us weirdos in mind. So I do hope that you'll seek it out. Elena, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just been such a pleasure. Where can people find you around the internet? How can they support your work? What's going on? Oh, wow. Well, I recently built myself a website. So you can check out my website, elenasmith.com. And part of why I built that is because I sadly had to say goodbye to Twitter after a decade of of overuse. (laughs) So I am on Instagram, but I don't really use it that much. And I, yeah, I'm just around. But actually, my website has a contact form. So if you want to send me an you can do that. Yeah. But, yeah. But thank you. This was the most fantastically yes. conversation. And I, I love the podcast and I am so glad. Oh, thank are, you. You know, talking every week about little women because that's as it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much again, Elena. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. You can find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. That was where I posted before we recorded saying, if you have questions for Elena, tell me now. So if you want to get in on future Q&A opportunities, at Joe's Boys Pod on Instagram is where you need to be. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>